In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you guys have not read C.S. Lewis, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, I would highly recommend you do that. There's this little vignette in there. It says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought that he was a man. Well, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The problem that we find within modern evangelicalism is that we think God is safe. We don't see him as other than us. We, like Susan, think of him as a man instead of God, and we think that he's safe. But God is not safe, but he is good. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That opening verse begs a question. The question of the ages. A question that we need to have answered. And at the same time, these opening verses of our, um, our scripture today are the summation of the rest of the verses of this chapter and this event. A chapter that is all focused on and around glory. Glory to the Father, and that the Son of God may be glorified. If you haven't thought this about this, about this chapter, the shocking truth is that the thing that was used to bring glory to God was pain. Pain in the form of an illness that caused a man to die. And that death ended that pain of that man, Lazarus. But that death brought greater pain and sorrow to his sisters, who were left without their brother, without a covering. And they were left without a clear understanding of why that man, who they believed was from, at least from God, why he didn't answer their prayers. They had seen him answer prayers of people before, seen him heal other people. Why didn't he save their brother? And they allowed, he allowed these sisters to live in that pain of the loss of their brother and the confusion and jumbled emotions over the perceived failure of Jesus in not doing that which they thought that he should do. God allowed them to live in that for four days before he, Jesus, even showed up. This truth, this reality ties in with the question that was asked in that opening verse. And the answer to it as well. 
Because we all understand death. We know what that is. We get the concept of dying. You're here one moment, and then the next you're not. That's the human condition. The condition that all humans understand and accept as reality. So can you imagine then the reaction to Jesus calling a four-day-old body out of a tomb? That body was no longer a person. Think about that. Lazarus had ceased to exist for almost a week. But Jesus did the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the impractical, the completely impossible. He called a dead man out of a tomb. He reunited a soul to a decomposing body, a body that had stopped the process of decay, a body that he had regenerated to be able to again accept that soul. And he did all this before he called Lazarus to come out on that day. And Lazarus, after having, him, having this happen to him, responded to that call by his master and obeyed. And he hobbled out of that cave. This is what caused many on that day to believe in him. Not in Lazarus, but in Jesus. We sitting here think that belief in Jesus after this miracle is not only reasonable, but it's the only logical thing that should have happened. In our thinking, you can't witness a decaying person be brought back to life and not accept the fact that a person who did this is outside of this realm. They're not bound by the same laws as we are. They have to be God. And because of this thinking, this then begs the question that I first mentioned, the one that we must wrestle with and have answered. Why did some believe and others didn't? We're going to come back to that question in a bit. For now, let's move on to the, what that reaction was once the Pharisees and religious leaders were told that Jesus had brought back a dead man. Verses 47 and 48. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Before we get to what they said, let me remind you of the charge that these men were given by God, what their job was, what their responsibility was. Their duties were to minister at the altar, to burn the sacrifices and teach the law. That's given to us in Deuteronomy 33. Their primary function was to maintain and assure, as well as reestablish, the holiness of the chosen people of God. Exodus 28. They mediated the covenant of God with Israel. That's Malachi 2.4. And they acted as judges, imparting answers to legal questions. Exodus 33 again. In short, they were to teach the word to the people and then ensure that the word was kept. They were to represent God to the people, and they were to represent the people to God. They were supposed to be the front line of defense against heresy and false worship, which would make sense as why they followed Jesus around everywhere that he went. 
if Jesus had been a false prophet, if he had been teaching heresy, then their concern about everyone believing in him would have been valid. And if this were the case, they were given clear instructions on how to deal with heretics like this. You were to stone them to death. But their reaction to this miracle and the question that they posed concerning what they were to do with Jesus revealed what it was that they were truly concerned with. Not the holiness of God and his people. Again, let's listen to verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were concerned that everyone would believe in him, and that these people would crown him Lord of Lords, King of the Jews, and then the Romans would come and crush them. Take away the authority that the Romans had allowed these Jewish leaders to have. In short, they were afraid of losing their kingdom instead of advancing the kingdom of God. R.C. Sproul was once asked why Christians in America don't suffer persecution like Christians in other countries. His first answer was that the Founding Fathers came from places where they or their families had been persecuted for their faith. And for this reason, they had written into the Constitution laws to protect us from persecution. But then as an added caveat, R.C. did what R.C. always did. He said that American Christians had become very good at the art of conflict avoidance. Where our brothers in, in history or in other countries will boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, the name of Christ, and the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of God alone, and then suffer persecution for it. We here in America avoid controversy. We don't offend with truth. We go along to get along. R.C. said, that we here in America, Christians here in America, live like we are on a reservation. Now, if you don't know what a reservation is, a reservation is a place, a specific spot where conquered people are sent to live. It's where they are told to live and then governed by the rulers who have conquered them. And on our reservation, which is the church building, we are allowed to act and talk like we want. We can have our little religious services and religious rites, but don't dare take them off the reservation, lest we suffer the same fate as the American natives who dare to live free and leave their reservations. We have become very pragmatic in living. We are willing to settle for what the culture tells us what we can do. We are willing to comply with the rules that culture dictates to us concerning our little reservation. We live like these Jews did. These religious leaders, those who were under the rule of that foreign nation, Rome, they had over and again failed to stand for the truth of God. 
even though they were commanded by God to uphold truth, even though they had been given that privilege and honor of the offices that they held, they had compromised on the word of God. And the excuse that they gave was that they compromised for the sake of the word. We need to stop and ask ourselves, is this not us? Are we, as R.C. said, living on a reservation? Are we compliant to the establishment in order that our kingdom will not be crushed or destroyed? Do we remain quiet concerning truth, justice, so that we can keep the crumbs that this society has given to us and thinking that we have done something in doing that? Are we not supposed to be advancing the kingdom of God and not worrying about protecting our own little kingdom? Don't we say that we believe that our God is sovereign, that he reigns? Then why are we so apathetic towards the plight of the millions that will be murdered in our country this year? Not by gang violence, not by drug overdose, not in car accidents, but by very nice-looking kind, polite women who think that, mur that murdering their unborn child for the sake of convenience is okay. Is this why we don't preach the truth or the gospel to people? We don't want to have our reservation jeopardized. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be seen as unkind, unloving, or mean. And we don't want to be known as that crazy Christian who will tell you about the glory of God or the kingdom of God. You may be sitting there wondering, what does this have to do with me? That's God's kingdom, and I'm not a pastor. So what's wrong with me having my own little kingdom? Well, listen to how God told us how we should view ourselves and all other kingdoms in comparison to that kingdom of God. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Paul says, God says through Paul, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's a news flash We are not Americans. We are citizens of heaven, free members of the kingdom of God, and co-heirs of the sonship of the king himself. This is what makes our cowardly living so cowardly. This is what makes our willingness to accept the crumbs of this society so bad. This is what makes trying to build our little sandcastles here so pathetic. But understand this. Know this as a fact as you're sitting there. Our actions prove our belief. They prove what we believe. What kingdom we truly belong to. 
Don't think that just because you made a profession or are willing to be a good steward of that reservation that you are actually a citizen of heaven, of the kingdom of God. This was the mindset of those men that gathered on that day to discuss the Jesus problem that they were facing. They knew, they knew in their minds, they knew that they were in the good graces of God. They were sure that they were in the kingdom. And so they asked, what are we to do with Jesus? And instead of worshiping him, acknowledging that he was God, that he was the true high priest, and obeying him, they gather to try and figure out how they are going to protect their reservation, their little kingdom. Protect it against the king of the kingdom of God. Before we move on, you sitting there need to ask yourself this question. Are you willing to step out to step off this reservation and advance the kingdom of God. You need to settle this in your mind now. What do you believe? What kingdom are you a citizen of? And then act in that belief because of that citizenship. Know this to be true. In the coming days, this reservation is going to come under attack going to have its borders and freedoms whittled away. And if you haven't settled in your mind now what you're going to do then, how you're going to act then, you will fall in line with the government that is controlling this reservation. You will be like those so-called Christians in Germany of the 30s who went along to get along all the while, their government killed millions and, more importantly, blasphemed God. You're sitting there going, well, but at least we still have our reservation. We still have our churches. They're never going to take away our reservation. Want to bet? Drive through Oklahoma and look at all the reservations that were given to the natives here. What happened to them? Why do you see signposts on all the roadways declaring that you are entering a reservation? But all that land now belongs to others. Reservations are not for free men. They are for, for defeated men. And Jesus has come to set us free. John 8, 36 Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Decide now, will you comply or will you obey? Will you cower in fear for your kingdom as these men did? Or will you stand for Jesus and his kingdom and act to advance it? This brings us to verses 49 and 50. But one of them, 
Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. While the God-ordained office of high priest was filled by that man, Caiaphas, we know that, he, that the office that he held was not the office that God had ordained in the book of Exodus. That office that God ordained was a lifelong office that was only handed to another person on the death of the last high priest. But this man, who was an elected official, who held the office of high priest, who was the pastor of pastors, the pope at that time, he then demonstrates to these other religious leaders how the person who is supposed to be the mediator of the covenant of God here on earth is supposed to act. He teaches them what a high priest should do by telling them that the way to protect their kingdom, that godly and right thing to do, the way to remain on the reservation was to kill an innocent man. Let that sink in. This man who had the highest position within the Jewish religion, who was in essence the litmus test, the trendsetter the for the religious fervor and zeal within the nation, after viewing all the evidence, praying to his God, Thinking it over, he decided that the godly thing, the right thing, the thing that would bring the most glory to his God was murdering an innocent man. That was the right thing to do. This was the heart of the man who was leading that religious zealots or those religious zealots that lived on that reservation. This was their mindset. This brings us to verses 51 through 53, where the Apostle John, doing what he always does within his gospel, interjects an explanation of the events that were taking place within the event itself. And he does that in order that we can see how all these things work toward that goal that he has in mind, that he told us of in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the arrest of this account is all commentary by John on this statement made by, made by Caiaphas, beginning in verse 51. It says, he didn't say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. John tells us that while Caiaphas may have been that voice that spoke on that day, and that his intentions were evil and sinful, sinful, he reveals while in this realm that was reality, at the same time what he said was prophetic in revealing the salvation plan, not for the physical nation of Israel, but for the spiritual nation of Israel that was within that nation and without. So, verses 54 
Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. We need to understand that Jesus did come to fill and fulfill the office of the high priest, to fulfill all prophecy concerning the Messiah. And the Messiah had to die. But he had to die on the Passover. This was the meaning of the giving of the Passover. That Passover spoke of him. It pointed to him. It was a shadow of him. Which is why we're told in verses 55 through 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. What John is doing here is he's setting the stage for the last week of the life of Jesus. That week where he would be preparing for the Passover. But unlike the rest of the people who had to purify themselves in order to take the Passover, he needed no purification. What he needed to do and what he was doing was preparing the disciples for the coming reality of this Passover as he became that Passover lamb. So I began this sermon posing a question. Why did one group of people believe and the others didn't? Why did they sell Jesus out? And then there's this other issue that we need to deal with too. Why did God use pain To bring glory to him. And then there's another question that ties into that first one. Found within these verses as well. Why would Caiaphas be allowed to speak prophecy concerning the Christ? Why would God use this evil man who was his enemy to speak truth? Truth that would be used as the backbone, as the reason why these men would murder his son. The answer to all these questions is found in the same place. It's found in the person of God. Let's deal with the high priest prophesying first. God uses evil for His glory. While this seems contradictory in our thinking, this entire account account is centered on on him using evil for his glory. Because death is evil. It is outside of his creation of God. It is only because of the sin of man that death entered this realm. And God uses death to bring him glory. This isn't new. He used the evil intentions of the brothers of Joseph in in his kidnapping, in selling him into slavery, lying to their father, 
and then the years of hardship in prison for Joseph, all for good and for his glory, as told to us in Genesis chapter 50. He calls evil king Nebuchadnezzar his servant in Jeremiah and again in Ezekiel. And he, kings, he calls the king Cyrus, his anointed in Isaiah. And before that, in chapter 44, he said of Cyrus that he was his shepherd and that he would fulfill all of his purposes. You may be sitting there and still aren't convinced that God uses evil for his glory by these verses. Well, I have one more to submit to you. We are told that the most evil act that has ever happened within humanity, that has ever been undertaken, the arrest, the beating, the torture, and the crucifixion of the only truly innocent man was used by God for his glory. More than just was it used by God, Everything that happened was his commanded purpose. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says, For truly in this city were, were there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, those Romans, and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had pre destined to take place. It's when we truly begin to see that God is sovereign over all things in his creation, that sin and Satan are not out of his control, that he has never stopped being God over them, not for one single solitary second in all of history, that we can then truly, really begin to understand that all things really do work together for the good for those that love God, that are called according to his purpose. But wait a second. If what you're saying is true, David, this makes God evil. Makes him the author of sin. You can't use pain, sin, evil, and still be good. Are you sure about that? Because the Bible says differently. Psalm 92 verse 15 tells us, Yahweh is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not the author of confusion. God is not the author of sin. You may be asking yourself, how can this be since God is the creator of all things? Wouldn't that include sin? No. Write this down. Get this in your mind, in your heart. Know this as a truth. Sin is not a created thing. Sin is neither substance, being, spirit, nor matter. 
And for this reason, it's not proper to think that sin is something that was created. God created man perfect, perfect, morally perfect, without sin. He declared of his work in creation in Genesis 1.31 that it was very good. That's the end of his creation, of what was in this realm. There was no sin, just perfection. So where did the sin come from then? What is sin if it's not created? Again, write this down. Sin is simply a lack of moral perfection in a created thing that has corrupted itself. Fallen creatures were created perfect, which is why we bear full responsibility for our sin. And all the, in all the evil in the universe emanates from the sin of us fallen creatures. But this does not imply that man falling, nor the angels falling before man, surprised God. He created hell in advance of them falling. And you think about this. In the Garden of Eden, he created the, the tree of eternal life, right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were created in what is going to be our resurrected bodies, eternal. They would not have died. Why would there be a tree of eternal life if they and all their prodigy were going to live eternally? God knew. And just like with the tree of the cross of Calvary, that would bring restoration between him and all mankind. That tree of life was planted there as a representation of the salvation that he had already put in place. God knew that they would sin, and because of their sin, that all of his creation would be tainted with sin. He knew that they, in their sin, would try to bring about their own salvation from their self-imposed death sentence through the eating of that tree of life just as they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil but he knew he understood that while they could take of that tree of life and that they could eat of it and live forever if they did they would live forever separated from him forever his enemy so he cast them from the garden and prevented them from coming anywhere near that tree. He would reconcile those that were his by a tree. And all the pain, all the evil, all the sin within the world is our fault. The liberals do have this one right. We truly have ruined our environment. Romans 5.12 tells us that death entered the world because of sin. Death, pain, disease, stress, exhaustion, calamity, all the bad things that happened came as a result of the entrance of sin into this universe. And these things, along with evil, fallen, unregenerate people, will continue to be used by God for his glory. 
which may include having his children arrested, tortured, killed. This is how he has advanced his kingdom from the very beginning. Those children who, like his son, would not live on a reservation, but who were free citizens of heaven, who proved what they believed by their actions. We need to decide. Which brings us to the second point, and that first question. Why did some people believe after seeing Jesus raise Lazarus and some didn't? Why were some of those people standing there on that day? Why did they believe? Were they just smart? And the other people were stupid? Were some of those people standing there more religious, more in touch with the spiritual realm, and for this reason they believed? Did some of them, after seeing Lazarus hobble out of the cave, reason within themselves, talk it over, discuss it, and then, after all that, they chose to believe that Jesus was God? And those that reported Jesus to the authorities, those are the ones that made a bad choice, a stupid choice? If this is your thinking, then you're throwing out orthodoxy and the truth of the Bible, and you believe that man can choose God. But listen to what the Bible says. Romans 3, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. How did some believe then? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that, one, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the truth of the gospel. And this is what we call the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace are impossible for the unregenerate to understand. We need to get this in our head. It is impossible for them to understand them. They are even an anathema to many, even within the evangelical world. And the reason for this is that these doctrines of grace place all the glory, all the power, all the sovereignty where they belong, with God, and they don't give any part of them to humans. And for this reason, they're rejected within mainstream evangelicalism. And you may be sitting there saying, of course I can choose God. I see people choose God all the time. Of course you can lose your salvation. I've seen people walk away from the church. It happens all the time. But the problem is found in the fact that if you, a fallen creature, could in fact choose God, then you would, not just could, you would lose that salvation. Simply because we are sinful, we're fickle, 
In fact, we would lose it the day that we got it. But salvation is only of God, which is clearly stated in verses such as Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessings be on your people. In Psalm 62, 1, For God alone my soul awaits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And even in Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, Salvation belongs to Yahweh. It's his. It's not ours. You may be sitting there saying, but what about all those people I see choosing God? What about all those people that come streaming down the aisles at the harvest crusades? What about the people I see raising their hands while that music leader is playing Come As You Are over and over and over? All too often, those people have been offered a false gospel, a false God that can't save. They're told that Jesus loves them as they are, that he died in order to fix their marriage, that he died because he wants them to be happy, that he died for them in their sin. And like that false story of that woman caught in adultery, that he doesn't condemn your sin. He just overlooks it. Just try to do better, would you? All too often, those folks are having a rough go of it. Those people that walk that aisle, that raise that hand. They're struggling with something within their life. And they've tried many things to fix that situation. So, hey, I might as well give this Jesus guy a try. What do I have to lose? So they walk an aisle. They raise a hand. They look at that man. And then they're pronounced saved. And they have just chosen a false God that's masquerading as a real God. And then they're told to carry the real Bible that speaks of the real God. And they're told to read that Bible, to study it, and that it will help them. And to some degree, it will be a help to them. Because within the Bible, there is truth. This is truth. But more often than not, it's dry, lifeless, and boring to them as is their life in this salvation of this false God. So they walk away from it and go on to try something else. They have better things to do with their Sunday mornings than come to church, like sleep. They revolt against the notion that they must obey God, that God will allow and even ordain pain and suffering for those that are his in order that they would bring glory to him. They will refuse to leave the reservation and walk in the newness of the real life found in God because they inherently know that to advance the kingdom of God, theirs must die. The God that's been presented to them is not a God. Listen to this one, just this one description of the real God. As God speaks of himself in Isaiah 45, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds raid down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, Yahweh, have created it. 
Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. And don't think it's strange that many in this day get all this wrong. Hear what it was like when Jesus walked on the earth. John chapter 12. So when Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And this is not the first time that God has blinded eyes or hardened hearts either. Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Well, that doesn't sound right. God hardens hearts and closes eyes and ears in order that people, people created in his image, people who have dreams, families, loved ones, in order that they might die. That doesn't sound right. That is a doctrine of demons. No wonder evangelicals hate the doctrines of grace. Because if these are the doctrines of grace, they are whacked. That isn't a loving God, and that isn't the God that I know. The God that I know is loving. He desires that none should perish, that all should come to him. He came to save the entire world. He's begging people to accept him. The only people that go to hell go to hell over his dead body. That's the God that I know and serve. Those that hold to that semi-Pelagian understanding of the gospel will point out about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that he did that only after Pharaoh had hardened it himself. The hardening of God, they will say, was just an acknowledgement of the decision that he already made. And they're right in that statement. But they're completely wrong in the application of it, in their understanding of it, because Pharaoh was just like Abraham. Just like Moses and David and Jeremiah and the Apostle John, he was just like you and me. He was born dead. Dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 And there was nothing he could do to become undead. He was by nature a child of wrath and could only choose within that nature that which was his nature. This all points to that second thing from our account today. Why did some believe and others report? 
Well, the clearest explanation, the clearest biblical explanation that I can give to you can be found in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Wait a minute. Are you saying that the people that believed in this account are Jacob and those that didn't are Esau? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. God has chosen an elect group of people out of the mass of humanity as a love gift for his son. That's John chapter 6, verse 39. And this elect group of people are the ones that Jesus came to die on the cross specifically for. Wait a minute, specifically for? Doesn't John 3, 16 and 17 say that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save the world? Yes, it does. But you have to read the rest of that account in context to get the meaning of what John was saying. Because verses 1 through 15 explain the context of what John meant by world when Jesus taught Nicodemus about the truth of salvation. And he used the example of the wind to describe that salvation. Do you control the wind? Do you direct the wind? Can you cause the wind? You can't do that with salvation either. And there's a single descriptor given of those that are described as the world in John 3.16. Those that God loves found in John 3.18. And that word is belief. True, saving belief. This is something that Jesus reiterated in John 17. When praying to his Father, he tells of these doctrines of grace. Verse 6, he says, when he's praying to his Father, he says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Do you hear that contradiction? The people that you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And then two verses later, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Again, that separation. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. We must understand that God is God. Aslan was just a little picture of God, the truth, the reality of God. He is not safe. I know that this may come as a shock to you, but it's true. Which means that he is God over salvation and over belief. We should never be shocked that a person does not believe concerning God. They're only doing that which is in their nature. They can only understand within their nature. The shocking thing is when people do understand, do grasp truth, do believe. Because the shocking thing about that, because it can only happen because God has given them a new nature, a new heart. 
He has opened their ears, unstopped their dull um, eyes, unstopped their dull eyes and unstopped their dull ears. But you could be asking yourself, but if God is a God of love, then why does he not do this for every person? Because that seems like the fair thing to happen, the loving thing to do. You don't understand sovereignty or holiness or God. Hear Paul again on this. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then Paul goes on to use that example of Pharaoh to prove this point as well. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has, on, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist this will? Paul knew that those that he was writing to would come to the same place that we are today, which is why he continued and gave the answer to them that we must embrace. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here is the answer to that question that I posed. Why do some believe and others report? Because God in his infinite goodness had predestined, elected, and called some to his salvation. And those that he called came. We should never marvel at the fact that he doesn't offer his salvation to everybody. We shouldn't wonder at it, question him. What we should marvel at is that he offers his salvation to any of us. Because none of us deserve it. None of us have a right to it. None of us could earn it. We're not that good looking. We're not that nice. Not that talented. But he in his love, he sent his most precious son to earth as a man to live a perfect life in order to become a perfect sacrifice that would be used to redeem us, those that he has chosen to save. 
That is the price for our salvation. And it is his. And he alone has the right to give it to those that he has in his love and grace chosen out of the mass that have sold themselves into the slavery of sin. We should not marvel that some reported Jesus to the religious leaders because that was the smart, the safe, the reasonable thing to do in protecting their reservation. We shouldn't marvel at the religious leaders who made a pragmatic decision to murder an innocent man in order to protect their kingdom and their religion. Those are the reasonable, the understandable actions of humans. They were only acting within their nature, deciding within what their nature allowed them to do. They were acting to protect themselves. They were acting to protect their families, their loved ones. But what we should marvel at, what we should be astonished by, is those that believe. Because they are the ones that did the unreasonable, the unthinkable, the completely illogical. They chose outside of their old nature. They chose to come to the master that had given them a new nature, that had given them ears to hear his voice. So they did that which they now desire to do. They obeyed, and they came. And this is why we have come here today. Because what we have been doing for this last hour is completely illogical. It's completely unreasonable. It makes no sense. You guys could be sleeping. But our master calls. So we obey. And we come. Let's pray.